Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 451, Interview with James Holland about his book, The Savage Storm, The Battle for Italy, 1943. Mr. Holland, the author of such books as Brothers in Arms, Normandy 44, and Dam Busters, comes on to discuss the last days of Italy as an Axis power. The Allies, thinking this would be a relatively straightforward affair, find themselves bogged down, to say the least. And as Mr. Holland has a much bigger podcast than mine, we have ways of making you talk, I appreciate him coming on and doing me this favor. Mr. Holland, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's a delight. Thank you for having me on. No, it's, it's a delight for me. I love all of your books. I love the interviews that you've done, uh, the stuff that you've done on TV, your podcast as well. And so I just want to let the listeners know that in the next 30, 45 minutes, whatever, if they hear something that sounds like a teenage girl giggling, that's me. That's not James. That's me. I just want to put that. I'm going to try and edit all that out, but I'm a huge fan and I really do appreciate you coming on today. Oh, well, it's, it's really nice to see you, and, and thank you very much for having me on, and I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So so let's just jump into this. So we're talking about Italy. It's uh, the late summer of 1943, and uh, because I enjoyed so much when I was reading some of the earlier stuff about North Africa, I'm going to phrase my first question this way. Um, so ending what General Richard O'Connor started with Operation Compass in early 1941. The Allies mm-hmm. have finally taken North Africa. They've taken Sicily. And now, what next? Because landing troops on mainland Italy was not a foregone conclusion. Can you tell us how that ultimate decision was eventually made? Yeah, so really it goes back to the decision in May 1943 at the Trident Conference in Washington Mm -hmm. to prioritize Operation Overlord, as it's going to be called. Um, And this, of course, is a cross-channel invasion from England to Normandy, um, which we all now know um, eventually took place on the 6th of June 1944, but then was scheduled for the 1st of May 1944, Mm. um, back in May 1943 when it was agreed. 
And everything was around that. So uh, future operations, it had already been agreed at the Casablanca conference back in January 1943 that, that Sicily was going to follow Tunisia and, and the clearing up of, um, of all Axis forces in North Africa. Mm-hmm. And Sicily made perfectly good sense. It's a foothold in in Europe. It's it's further kind of um, in, encouraging the Italians to, to 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 get out of the race, and all very good reasons for doing it. And it's also, you know, I, I don't think we should underestimate the importance of seeing a husky, the invasion of of Sicily, as a kind of sort of a dry run for overlord in a way. Right. I mean, you know. Big amphibious operations, you know, they they require a huge amount of logistics, a huge amount of uh, they're incredibly complicated, mm-hmm. lots of different moving parts, lots of different levers. You know, can the Allies pull it off? I mean, you know, Torch was an amphibious operation, but not on the scale of crossing the Mediterranean Sea right. that, um, that that Sicily was. But at the Trident Conference, it's agreed that 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 Overlord, the cross-channel invasion to Normandy, is going to be the number one main priority for the Western allies in the West. Right. In the fight against Nazi Germany. But Sicily is kind of all wrapped up by the 17th of August. Mm -hmm. And there are very good reasons for going into Italy. Number one, you've got vast allied forces in the Mediterranean now. And I'm not just talking about about boots on the ground. I'm talking about naval forces. I'm talking about air forces. You know, some kind of four and a half thousand aircraft, if you're talking about the whole Mediterranean. Wow. Um, You know, these are huge numbers. And Italy still isn't quite out of the war at this point. Um, you know, uh, um, conversations are starting, and actually the first face-to-face conversation, armistice conversations, takes place in Lisbon, as it happens, between the Italians and the Allies on the 17th of August as well. Lots of things happen on the 17th of August, <laughs> including the Schweinfurt raid, including the uh, uh, Pienemunder raid, um, including the wrapping up of the Sicilian campaign, mm. and including the decision by the chiefs of staff to actually go into Italy. But there's another good reason we're going Italy, and that is to uh, um, get a further foot in the in the door of Europe, but also to draw off troops, German troops from from um, northern France uh, and indeed the eastern front into Italy, because currently there's 32 Italian divisions um, across the Balkans and into Greece, right. as well as those troops in Italy. So with Italy out of the war, Germany's going to either have to kind of give up those territories or fill them with their own troops. Mm-hmm. You know, 32 to kind of 50 divisions worth of troops is a hell of a lot. And they've got to come from somewhere. So that's going to weaken other fronts. So potentially that might might help Operation Overlord, the cross-channel invasion. Right. And then the other reason is, and this is a growing reason, mm-hmm. is to get to the Foggia airfields. Now, about kind of a third of the way up, the leg on the Adriatic side, so on the eastern side of Italy, there's one of the very, very few flat areas in Italy. <laughs> right. uh, and it's really flat as a board, but surrounded by mountains and so on. But that's a place where you can put lots of um, big airfields, airfields that can take four-engine bombers, heavy bombers, strategic bombers, that can further tighten the noose around um, Nazi Germany. The reason you want to do this is because back in England, getting ready for Operation Overlord, you need to have control of a large swathe of the skies over Northwest Europe. Right. Why do you need that? Because the moment you land in Normandy, the cat's out of the bag. And then it's a race between which side can build up the most men and material in the bridgehead mm. as quickly as possible. Right. Is it going to be the Allies who've got to get across the sea from England who have overwhelming amounts of material and men and, and ordnance and all the rest of it? Or is it going to be the Germans who are already on the continent? 
And the key thing is is the build-up, the speed of build-up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's no one's doubting that the Allies have got more than the Germans. Is can they bring it to bear quick enough to prevent the Germans from kicking them back into the sea? Right. So you have to slow up the German response to the Normandy bridgehead when it finally happens. And how you do that is by destroying their transportation system. And you do that by blowing up bridges, attacking marshalling yards, blowing up railways, and so on and so forth. And you can only do that by very low-level precision bombing. And you can only do that if you haven't got Fokker Wolves and Messerschmitts hovering above you. Right. So in other words, that is why it's an absolute prerequisite for, for Operation Overlord. You have to clear the skies. The problem is, mm-hmm. is the Luftwaffe aircraft factories are deep in the Reich. Most of the industry is in the west of Germany, which is very convenient if you're operating from the eastern side of England, because it's nice and close. Mm-hmm. But if you want to get to the Messerschmitt works or the Junkers works or whatever, you've got to go deep into the Reich. And the problem that they have in the summer of 1943, as they're going into the fall of 1943, is that they haven't got uh, a fighter plane that can escort them all, all, the, all the bombers all the way down into the into the um, Southern Reich. Right. And what happens when they try it is they get slaughtered, which is what happens on the 17th of August when they do the Schweinfurt-Regensburg raid. Mm-hmm. Um, 315 um, heavy bombers and 60 get shot down. Well, that's wow. a kind of 20% loss rate. And that is just totally unsustainable. So panic button gets hit. And they think, well, what are we going to do? Because, you know, we've set Operation Overlord, but without the skies clear, we can't do it. Right. And we're not going to do it without getting our whole bomber forces in, in the mighty 8th, the 8th Air Force, um, subject of Marshal Zier coming up, etc., um, without it getting decimated. So what are we going to do? We need to get a long-range fighter escort, and we need to further tighten the noose. Hey, here's a thought. What about going into Italy? And then from Italy, we can attack the southern right more easily from those airfields in Foggia. Mm-hmm. And it's that that persuades the Americans, particularly, that going into Italy is a good idea. The fourth reason, of course, is to, is to get Rome, because Rome's a historic and ancient capital of um, uh, in, in Europe. Um, it's highly prestigious. It's the capital of one of the main enemies, i.e. Italy, at that time. And so there's, there's these four reasons for going in. Right. And you might as well. <laughs> the problem <laughs> is, yeah. the problem is, and this is the absolute kind of big issue of the entire plan, mm-hmm. They no longer have enough assault shipping to do what they want to do. They've got all the troops they could possibly need to effect a very, very quick victory in Italy. Right. They don't have the means of getting the troops to the beaches, mm. to, into Italy itself. Right. And that is the fundamental flaw with the Italian campaign plan. But the problem is they've crossed that Rubicon. They've made the decision. We're going in. And once you've, you know, it, these, these operations, these plans sort of generate a momentum all of their own. Right. Um, from which there's no turning back. And, and you stress that in your book. I mean, and, and I'm kind of exaggerating, but like every fifth page mentioned assault craft or landing craft. I mean, y- <laughs> even with the industrial... Yeah, I, did, I mean, that was deliberate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that uh, was deliberate. Yeah, because it literally limited, changed, focused, whatever, all these uh, plans, because you can make plans all you want, but unless you've got the craft to do it, the means to do it, it's right. just two guys talking to each other and that's going that's going to play into this so for all those reasons that you just gave which obviously were very good reasons uh, uh, the allies were certainly motivated to go into mainland italy but then again the germans on the other side can see the same reasoning and they're like oh we have to make sure their operation their landings it's either not successful or they don't get too far north or they don't get to foggia so the germans can read this too and so they're going to do everything they can to stop it. Um, was was Churchill's desire for Rome? Was it like, 
I mean, I know it, it's a historical city. Was it like a, was it almost like a political or whatever victory? Or, or is that, has he given his troops just something to shoot for? Well, Churchill's one of these guys. He's always got it. You know, he's always got his eye on 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 history and ah. and and, uh, and big events and all the rest of it. And you know, for him, Rome is just is is the great capital of Europe. Yeah. You know, it's it's Rome, Paris, and Berlin to a lesser extent. I mean, Berlin is is a much newer city. Rome just comes with all that history, right? And it's the seat of Mussolini. You know, Mussolini's been deposed and fascism is over. But but even so, it's 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 kind of. It's a major psychological thing right. that that he's absolutely obsessed with. Yeah, and that's for him. That's the most important reason. Mm-hmm. The most important, but, but but it's not the most important reason for the rest of the combined chiefs of staff. I mean, the right. combined chiefs of staff is to draw off troops from from elsewhere, the Eastern Front, and particularly the the Western Front, and to get the Foggia airfields. And those are two extremely valid reasons. It has to be said, right. The problem is, mm-hmm. is that the the you know for Operation Husky they have one thousand seven hundred forty three landing craft, assault craft of various kinds, right. and you need assault craft because you can't guarantee on getting into the ports, and you can't get into the ports because the Germans and the Italians, the enemy, will have uh, well, they're the strongest defended, and they're also going to be wrecked before you can get into them. So you can't actually get into them. So you have to have another way of delivering troops, ammunition, guns, tanks, all the rest of it. Onto into into the country, and the way to do that is to use these shallow draft landing craft, of which you know some can take a, a platoon of thirty seven men, some can you know are one hundred and twenty meters long, one hundred and twenty yards long, or whatever. Right. You know, so they're they're of varying size, but they can just deliver straight onto a beach, and so that negates the need for having a port. Gotcha. Because they're not going to have those. But, and, and if, but but yeah. the problem is, is by there are other commitments globally. Right. <laughs> you know, there is a massive Pacific campaign, which the Americans have decided they want to accelerate. Well, that's their choice. Yeah. You know, there are plans for amphibious operations in Burma, which have been promised to the, the, uh, the Chinese nationalist leader, Chiang Kai-shek, by the Americans. Yeah. You know, there is the preparation and training for Operation Overlord, the cross-channel invasion. So instead of having, you know, 1,750 landing craft that they had for Husky, by the time that comes to um, invading Italy, they've got 289 for, uh, uh, for, for, for eighth armies crossing of the Straits of Messina in the boot of, um, of, of Italy. Right. And they've got um, 359 for the main invasion, which is going to be Operation Avalanche just south of Salerno. And that's just not enough. Yeah. It's not enough to guarantee success or quick success, not, not even remotely. But They've, as I say, they, they they've psychologically made that leap that we need to get into Italy, we need to get to Voggia, you know, we need to draw off uh, off troops. So we're just going to have to do a bit. And they hope that that naval effort and air, air effort will be a kind of force multiplier. But you can't substitute boots on the ground in these kind of operations, and that's that's the truth of it. And and they just don't have enough to do what they want to do, despite the kind of incredible scale of production that's going on. You know, of La Saltcraft, um, or has been going on in in the United States and to a lesser extent in Britain as well. Right. If I could, in your book, you do a very good job of showing this. Yeah, you know, the decisions made, but then they start getting more ambitious and more ambitious and more ambitious. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of that later. But going back to Mussolini. Um, there are so many moving parts. Your 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 book does an excellent yeah. job of describing the arrest of Mussolini, the king who's selfishly thinking about his future, the suffering, mm-hmm. the abject suffering of the Italians who won out yeah. of the war. The Germans are going to pour more troops into Italy, but mm-hmm. and, and like you just said, the, uh, the 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 landing craft as well. But in the middle of this, 
um, and, and we and going back to Churchill for a second, one in Rome, you, you, I think I would be okay in saying Churchill is a man of grand gestures. He certainly loves grand gestures. And for here, the Allies need the Italians to bow out of the war, um, become neutral, or maybe even come on their side. But you've got the Allies wanting the Italians to do this at a certain time. You got the Italians wanting to do it in their own way because they're living amongst the Germans. And so could you kind of just walk us through the decision when the Italians yeah, yeah. finally make that decision as far as what they're going to do? Yeah. So this is, this is all part of it. So, so, so having, having done this sort of cross this psychological um, kind of Rubicon and made the decision to go into Italy mm-hmm. and knowing that they haven't got enough salt craft really to guarantee success, right. they then convince themselves that it's going to be okay because the Italians will come in on their side. Right. The problem with this is the timing of the announcement of the armistice. Mm. And when the, the, the Italians sign at, in, on the afternoon of September the 3rd, on the fourth anniversary of Britain's entry into the war right. in 1943, and part of, the, part of the signature, part of the deal that's, that's signed with the Italians is that the Allies will do a, an invasion of mainland Italy at some point. But they're not going to tell them exactly when this is going <laughs> to happen. Of course, right. Because they need tactical surprise. Mm-hmm. And until they actually land there and the armistice is announced, and the, and the idea is the announcement of the armistice is going to be made to the world on the eve of the invasion... Uh, Until that's announced, the Allies simply can't trust the Italians yeah. because they might turn around and tell the Germans. Right. You know, there is nothing that the Italians have done to convince the Allies that they're trustworthy of, of such a, 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 a an enormous decision in this. Right. It's, it's, so the, the the Italians take this on the chin, mm-hmm. but they say, well, just give us an indication. And they go, well, it'll be within two weeks. Right. Well, actually, it's going to be within six days. Um, right. But, but, but the Italians get it into their head for no reason whatsoever, that it is going to be sometime after the 12th of September. And they think that they need this time right. to, to get their troops ready to kind of, you know, get themselves organised. And the reason they need to get ready is because basically they're broke and they don't have enough fuel and they don't have enough supplies. And one of the reasons they don't have enough fuel and they don't have enough supplies is because there are large numbers of German troops in Italy mm-hmm. and they're hogging it. And they the, the Italians simply no longer have the clout to be able to argue with their still... Axis partners at this moment. Right. So they get it into their head that it's going to come later. Um, and it's not. And so the whole thing is based on kind of sort of, you, you know, total mis, misrepresentation and misunderstanding of what's going on. The other thing is, is that the Italians assume that the Allies are going to land around Rome. Mm-hmm. Well, basic, basic understanding of modern um, uh, military operations at this time tells you that you need you absolutely have to have as a non-negotiable prerequisite control of the airspace over the invasion uh, uh, over the invasion right. location and there is no way that they that, that allied fighter cover can can reach rome yeah. you know from bases in sicily or malta or whatever right. so it, it it's bonkers that the italians should think this but but be that as it may they do yeah now the second thing about all this is that back in may 1943 the allies intercepted a signal by the Germans, that suggested that should at any point in the future the Allies land in Italy, mm-hmm. the Germans would respond to this by retreating to the Pisa-Rimini line. Now, Pisa is on the west coast of Italy, about 200 miles north of, of Rome. Right. And 
Uh, Rimini is on the eastern coast, about 220 miles north of Rome. So a long way north. Mm -hmm. While they were having, while the Allies were having their negotiations with the Italians, they said to the Italians, "Look, we've got this piece of information about the Germans kind of wanting to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line. Do you know is that still true?" And of course, the Italians go, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it is." <laughs> Sorry, but but and, and but but it is a very very spurious basis on which to you know to, to which form a, a major amphibious operation of the scale of Operation Avalanche, which is the one that eventually gets launched on the morning of the 9th of September right. at Salerno, and. It's kind of wishful thinking. So, so part of the deal is, and so how the Allies have taught themselves into this is, we haven't got enough assault craft, but it's going to be okay yeah. because we've got quite a lot of warships. We've got quite a lot of air power. And the Italians are going to come in on, on our side. So all those, all those coastal guns are going to be in Italian hands and that then, you know, not the Germans. And also the Germans are going to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line anyway. So it's all going to be fine. And we're just going to waltz into, into Rome. You know, before Christmas. Yeah. Well, on that basis, yes, absolutely. But but <laughs> but it's very very thin intelligence, right. and as it happens, that is precisely the German plan. The Germans are getting fed up with what the Italians are doing. Sure. They're also trying to second guess what they they know the Italians are going to come out of the war, but they don't know when. They don't know what the what's going to happen. Yeah. Um. Precisely, and Hitler gets fed up with this and tells his his. Guys in the OKW, the uh, Oberkommando de Wehrmacht, the German general staff, mm -hmm. that on the 9th of September, he's going to tell the Italians what for. And what he's going to say is, all German troops in the south of Italy are going to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line. We're going to make our bastion there. And the Italians can just lump it. Right. And we're going to take over the whole of northern Italy. And it's no longer going to be Italian. It's going to be German. And that's going to be that. Had they done that, right. so had the Allies landed on the 12th of September, right. as the Italians had got it into their head, they would there would have been no Italian campaign, or certainly not oh. in the way that it would have done, because the Germans would have retreated. Right. That, But they didn't. They landed on the morning of the 9th of September, the very day that Hitler was planning to retreat to the Pisa Rimini right. line. So, of course, he changed his mind. He can't. And yeah. that was that. Yeah, exactly. And and not to jump too far ahead. Well, first of all, let me just say, I, when I was about 20 to 25% into the book, and, and talking about this very moment, I kept, I just kept whispering to myself, Wishful thinking, wishful thinking. You can't do that. You yeah. can't skew reality to fit some pre. You know, you know what I'm saying. And I just no. And I it's, there's lots of wishful thinking going on on the Allied side. Exactly. And, and you know, the truth is, is, is you know, the chief, the combined chiefs of staff have a very, very difficult balance. You know, on the one hand, they want to get on with the war and get it over and done with as quickly as possible. By the end of nineteen, you know, by the by by beginning of September 1943, the outcome of the war is no longer really in doubt. Right. It's just, it's just. How soon can you do it? Yeah, and and the tr and the truth of the matter is, is is the Allies always want to be six months ahead of where their capability really lies. Mm -hmm. Good point. You know, because yeah. they've got enough to do quite a lot, but they haven't quite got enough to feel comfortable about it. Right. So, you know, had they just had they just, I mean, what what's the alternative that you don't bother? You know, but 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 then you've got this problem of closing the net around Nazi Germany and getting to those aircraft factories in the Southern Reich. So mm -hmm. there's a real imperative to get on with it. And otherwise, then it could creep into 1945 and, and then it could creep into 1946. And, you know, who knows how long this war is going to drag on and how many more young lives are going to be caught. So sometimes right. it's worth kind of throwing caution to the wind and just going for it. 
Uh, and and that's very much the mentality with 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 the Italian campaign. Yeah, and it's a you know you 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 have to have some sympathy for these decisions. These are gargantuan decisions that have to be made. Oh yeah, you know you've got to keep the population on board. You got you know everyone wants to rush up. You can't you can't just sort of sit in the Mediterranean with all these forces and do nothing until you know overlord on. May 1944, as it's scheduled at that point. Right. So, so, so you've got to be seen to be doing something, and, and just bombing stuff is just not enough. And you have got all these forces in the Mediterranean. So you can you can see how they get themselves into this terrible pickle where they've kind of they, they've they've they know they're overreaching. They know they haven't got enough to do the job. But on the other hand, they've got too much to do. They they've got too much to do nothing. They've got too much to do nothing, and they haven't got enough to do what they want to do properly. And, and that's just a that is just an insolvable, unsolvable problem, without kind of scaling back on operations in the Pacific, right. um, or or elsewhere, or or supplies to Russia, or supplies to Chiang Kai-shek in China. You know, yeah. which is also I mean, it is a truly, truly global war. Right. And, and everyone wants everything all at once. <laughs> and and you know, they just they just don't have enough. And and and, and in the pecking order of priorities, yeah. Italy is is lower down than the Pacific. It's lower down than supplies to Chiang Kai-shek. Wow. And it's lower down than, than Operation Overlord by this stage of the war, even though back in December 1941, the Americans promised to do a Germany first. Yeah. And they're still saying, well, we are. We're, you know, Germany is, we're, we are planning to do Germany first, but at the same time, we also want to accelerate operations against Imperial Japan. Yeah. You know, and it's completely understandable, but it's just, it creates the mess that is Italy. I mean, that's, that is the byproduct. You, you can't have your cake... And eat it all at the same time. That's the problem. Absolutely. And everything you just said plays itself out later on in the book where the generals are yelling. You know, the yelling is going down the chain of command. That's as opposed to you want, you know, faster, faster, do more, do more, do more. But what you... Yeah, but what can you do? And what can you do? Yes. And, the, and the big problem is, is is they do actually, I mean, to cut a long story short, they, they get to the Fodger airfields on the 27th of September. Right. Massive tick. You know, Italy's out of the war. Tick. Has they've drawn off lots of German troops? Yes, because Germans are now occupying the Balkans and Greece and the Aegean um, and pouring into Italy. So... All of which, you know, to the tune of about 50 divisions. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge amount of, of troops that the Germans have got to find. I mean, you know, the British only produced 54 divisions in the entire war. Right. Um, so, you know, that's a huge number. But it comes at a cost because, because building up the strategic air forces in Foggia, mm -hmm. the shipping available is the shipping available. And so right. what you find is that strategic air forces going to Foggia are competing with the land forces for that shipping space. Oh, right. But the whole And that's that's a problem. Yeah. And and so so everyone traditionally has blamed Mark Clark, the Fifth Army commander, right. and they blamed Alexander, who is the overall army group commander, mm -hmm. and they blamed Monty for the first half of the Italian campaign up until the end of 1943 for Eighth Army being slow and stodgy and 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 not getting a, enough of a shift on. Right. Uh, you try fighting in Italy. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, in a highly mechanized war where you've got lots and lots of winding roads. I mean, the road network in in Italy, for example, it's it's one thing in a city where it's asphalted, but outside of the cities, it is not. Right. And you know, th those roads are designed for the occasional Fiat Topolino and a mule and cart. Right. They're not designed for <laughs> 3,000 vehicles per division. They're right. just not. Tons and, and tons. Yeah. And also, lots of them wind, you know, where you have mountains, you have rivers. Rivers are going to the sea, so they're cutting across the access of the Allied advance. Mm -hmm. So you have lots and lots and lots of bridges. 
If you're retreating Germans, it's very easy to blow those bridges up. It's very easy to blow up a tunnel and a mountain. It's very easy to blow up a mountain pass or, or a culvert or whatever. Right. At which point, engineers then have to compete with the infantry for shipping space to bring up bridging equipment and graders and dozers and, and all the rest of it. And, and you can start to see why the advance isn't quite as fast as it might be <laughs> very quickly. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and then it starts to rain. So from the 1st of October onwards, it just rains and rains and rains and rains it and rains. And, and so, in, oh and so in, the, in the valleys, it just turns into a quagmire. Right. Whereas in the mountains, it's just miserable and cold. So everyone's having a filthy time. Right. And it is not the fault of the ground commanders. It is the fault of, if anyone's to blame for, for, for the slowness of the Italian campaign mm -hmm. and for the debacle that it becomes, if you, if you look at it in those, through those lenses. Right. It is the combined chiefs of staff for not sufficiently supporting it in the first place. Right. And and didn't you and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was General George Marshall was warning about uh, operations sucking in more resources. And that's Yes, he was, but he was also right. saying in back in May nineteen forty three, right. once an operation is undertaken, it needs to be back to the hill. Yes. His very words. Yes. And, <laughs> and that is not what they're doing. Exactly. But of course, when he said that in May 1943, he's talking about Operation Overlord. He's not talking about the invasion right. of Italy. But it holds true. But but yeah. But he said it. Yes. And and he's absolutely right on uh, you know whether it's applied to Overlord yeah. or whether it's applied to Operation Avalanche in Italy. I mean, you know, the, the the same rules absolutely apply. So he's not he is not sticking to what his own mantra. Good, and good point. And you know he has to be blamed for this. Yeah. With a huge amount of sympathy, because these are very, very complex and difficult decisions. And it's all, you know, the whole thing is a horrible, ghastly kind of weighing up and juggling act. I mean, you, you know, and, it, and as it turns out, I personally, I think Italy was the right call. Right. Because Avalanche works. It's a success. They don't get kicked back into the sea. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the Germans make a complete hash of it. Right. Um, um, they also take the Germans take their eye off the ball in southeast Italy, so the British are able to sail into Taranto, which is a port with keys um, and, and doesn't require assault shipping. It requires ships, right. and and they've got some of those, so that's fine. And they can get in the back door, which enables them to the Allies to get to Foggia very quickly. And the reason they can get in the back door is because Kesselring, who's the commander of chief of all German forces in the south of Italy, mm -hmm. has thrown all his eggs into one basket to try and kick. Mark Clark's army out of um, out at Salerno, right? Um, and that's fine if you succeed, but it's a real cock up if you don't. Yeah. And he doesn't because he's he's left one like half a division of of lightly armed paratroopers, German paratroopers in the southeast of Italy, and oh. and they can't possibly stop the British from getting into Taranto and getting up the leg right. because that bit is not very mountainous, and so it's very easy to to move. Fauschenjäger are by their nature very lightly armed, so they haven't got any heavy weapons at all. Right. All they can do is offer a few rear guards and some, you know, mines and roads and blubs and bridges and sort of hope to hold them up a little bit, yeah. which they do for a little bit. But but you know, as I say, by the 27th of September, yeah. Foggia is an allied hand. So if you think about the four, the four aims of going into Italy, drawing off German troops, getting to Foggia, uh, um, getting Italy once and for all out of the war, mm -hmm. and capturing Rome, by the end of September. They've got three of those four things. And, you know, you'd have to say that's a pretty good result. Right. The bit they haven't got is Rome. And the problem is, you say you might say, well, why don't we just forget about Rome and just hold the line? Well, the problem you've got is now that you're investing so much effort into Foggia, mm -hmm. 
you know, including laying oil pipelines from the coast, wow. huge amounts of infrastructure. You know, when you think about what it, it, it and the other thing is also they increase uh, what is going to be six bomb groups. So that's six, uh, that's uh, um, three, six is 18, that's 18 squadrons of heavy bombers to 21 right. um, bomb groups. So 21 times three, so what's that? 60 yeah. um, squadrons, um, 63 squadrons. Yeah. So, so that's a huge increase in scale. So to, if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that the, the Germans are never going to counterattack and kick you out of it again. Right. So to do that, you need a cushion. And that cushion is at least 50 miles north of Rome. Oh, they need that buffer to make sure nothing happens. They need that buffer. To the, so, so, you can't just, right. so you can't just sit there doing nothing. You've got to keep pushing on and trying to get to Rome. Right. But what that means is the original aim of being in Rome before Christmas is long gone. And as yes. we all know, it ends up being not until the 4th of June, 1944, that they finally get into Rome. Right. And one of the problems is, is that the, the very modernity of the Allied armies, this huge amount of mechanization they do, and this, this mantra of steel, not flesh, using, you know, global clout and mechanization and, and, and machines to do a lot of the hard yards so that your boots on the ground don't have to, all of which is very noble and, and sensible. Right. And, unquestionably overall in the big scheme of the entire World War II saves a huge amount of lives. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, the problem of that is that in Europe, the winters in the 1940s are absolutely brutal. Yes. And the old traditional campaigning seasons of, you know, many hundreds of years earlier mm -hmm. still holds fast. Yeah. And and it particularly holds fast in a, in a country like Italy, which is incredibly mountainous, has limited infrastructure, and, and is going through one of the worst winters on record. That mechanization cannot be brought to bear in a way that you want it to in the middle of the summer. Right. So it is no it is no coincidence that that through the winter months they have a really torrid time. The moment it all clears up in the spring and, and Gadoff in May in 1944, it's game over for the Germans. You know, they cruise into Rome. Right. If I could, I just want to jump ahead for a second before I ask my next question. When you were talking in your book, when I'm about uh, 80, 85% done with it. You, you, you were mentioning the rains and it rained and it's in, it's in people's diaries. It's in their letters. It's yeah. in, it just, see, I had dreams about rain for two nights in a row of reading that section. of the <laughs> It was insane. But yeah. your point was all of that rain cancels out one of the biggest allies advantage. And that's their air power. They're spent, like you said, absolutely. Foggia is being transformed and yet to a degree, it doesn't matter because of all of that rain. It, it was just exactly. Just, that. Anyway. But so I want to, so, so the allies land, they have their three landings. There's Rommel in the North, this Kessel ring in the South. Eventually Rommel's yep. going to be moved out and he's going to go, I, I think to, to France to, to work on their defenses. Kessel. Yeah. This so is it's now, very much. It's, yeah. Sorry. Go yeah. ahead. So it's it's very much Rommel's idea to move to the Pisa Rimini line. Oh, He's right. got Hitler's ear, and Hitler agrees with him. And, and Rommel says, "Look, you know, I fought the I fought the Allies. Yeah. I know they've got incredible air power. You want to have the shortest lines possible. And the Pisa Rimini line is the one bit of all of Italy where the mountains go from one side to the other without any break whatsoever. There are mountain passes, but they are mountain passes, not valley passes. Right. Um, and that is the only place. And and this means we can have an impregnable defense." Uh, they won't be able to get there. You can protect the southern right, and you don't have to have quite as much men and material and resources driven into Italy. You know, just give it up. And Hitler actually, for once, goes, "Yeah, okay, fine." Right. 
But the problem is right. that, that, that what, Kesselring has other ideas, right? and he is commander of German troops in the south. Right. And they've got many more German troops there in throughout the south than the Allies can bring to bear at Operation Avalanche, you know, which is Mark Clark's landing, Fifth Army landings are south of Salerno, right. which is about, you know, 25 miles south of Naples. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, 100 plus miles south of Rome. And, um, well, quite a, yeah, about 140 miles south of Rome. And... The problem with that is 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 that Castlereagh then goes, no, I'm going to contest this. Yeah, and he makes and he he shoves a lot of uh, a, a lot of forces at the 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 Fifth Army, um, the U.S. Fifth Army landings, mm-hmm. and chucks all his eggs in one basket. Right, and weirdly, Hitler is impressed by this, even though it is an abject failure because. Oh. They don't kick the Allies back in. They don't Fifth Army, which is actually, although it's the United States Fifth Army is a is a British and American army, mm-hmm. um, or rather, it's an American army with British troops in it. Right. Um, they don't kick out the. They 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 are unable to push the Fifth Army back into the sea, uh, and, and they're forced backwards. Mm-hmm. Hitler's reaction to this, rather than going, "Oh, let's hop foot it quickly to the Pisa Rimini line," right. is. Right, I now want to fight for every single yard oh, south of Rome. Right. Which is what consigns both sides to this awful slugging match over the winter of 1943 and into 1944. Yeah. And, and, and the problem you have as a, as a general in the German army at this time is, is if you're kind of, if you're not making much of a fuss, then Hitler's not really watching you. But the moment you catch Hitler's eye, right. the Hitlerian spotlight shines very brightly on you. <laughs> sure. And as a field commander, your, your ability to maneuver is, is seriously hindered. Mm-hmm. And so Kassering now can't do anything. He, he can only stay and fight, even oh. when you know, his, his, his divisions are being decimated. And what he consequently ends up doing is constantly kind of firefighting and plugging holes with, you know, a company here, a battalion there. So these divisions are never fighting as single divisions. Right. So they they lose all their unit cohesion. Morale absolutely plummets. I mean, they do a pretty good job, but but you know, that doesn't take a huge amount of skill to kind of sit in a mountain and fire a machine gun right. or, or lay some mines or or get your Zeiss icon binoculars out and and act as a spotter for the artillery below. I mean, you know, this is pretty basic stuff. And, of course, you know, from a German point of view, mm-hmm. if you run away, you get shot. So, you know, there's sort of compelling reasons to stay there. Uh, and so there's a difference, I think, between, you know, tactical genius and and high levels of training and a highly disciplined army, which is doing exactly what it's told because Hitler tells them to. Right. And, and you stress in your book um, that the Allies had figured out by now that if you're going to attack, it would be really good to have a three-to-one odds. And clearly that's not happening because now the Kessel Ring's in charge and Hitler wants him to fight. There's just more and more troops that are going to pour into Italy and he's going to use, right. Kessel Ring's going to use them because, like you said, Hitler's watching him now. So the American, excuse me, the Allies do not have the numbers theoretically that they need. They try to rely on naval power and air power, but again, the rains come along to negate a lot of that. And so it does yep. become a slugfest when that was the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen as far as the allies were concerned. exactly yeah yeah it was and and th- this is all part of the kind of battles to still get beyond rome but as long as you're doing the attacking you hold the initiative right. even if you're not attacking very successfully but i would argue that the u.s fifth army does incredibly successfully in the circumstances mm-hmm. i mean you, you know salerno is a close-run thing but they absolutely see it off um and and yes that is because of 
um, the weight of fire from the naval support, and it is also because of of air support. But ultimately, it's boots on the ground. Yes, and these are the infantry divisions. It's the thirty sixth Texans. It's the forty fifth Thunderbirds. It's the it's the it's the fifty sixth London Division and the and the and the forty sixth Midland Division. You know, the, these are you know line infantry divisions, which are really when all is said and done, they're the ones who are the victors of of right. of Salerno. Right, uh, and you know, Mark Clark does a really good job of 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 marshalling his troops in the right places. His deployments are really sensible, showing the the the, the right amount of backbone. I, I mean, I find it absolutely just bizarre that anyone could criticize Mark Clark mm-hmm. for, for 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 Salerno, which is a terrific victory snatched from the jaws of <laughs> extreme high risk right i mean despite so you know much. because nothing nothing none of the kind of pre-battle expectations the italians are completely useless don't do anything certainly don't don't take the attack to the germans right the germans mass in much greater force than 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 had been appreciated mm-hmm. or, or expected and they hold their nerve and they and and they fight on you know, by the 27th of September, as I've told you, Foggia is in Allied hands. By the 1st of October, Naples, the great city, third city of Italy, is, is in Allied hands. They get across, Fifth Army gets across the Volturno, a really unbelievably tough proposition, a winding wide river with very waterlogged floodplains right. overlooked by lots of hills on which Germans have observers and machine gun nests and mortars and all the rest of it. They get across that. And then by the end of the year, they manage to get through what is a unbelievably formidable defensive position, the, the Bernhard line or the winter line, as the Americans call it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's absolutely hats off. Uh, and they're doing this by the infantry crawling up, you know, 3,000-foot-high peaks like Monte Samucro right. um, with mule trains, which they up until they got to Italy, they'd never used before <laughs> in their life, right. uh, and with no mountain training whatsoever. And they prize off the Germans and win. Yes. I mean, yeah. Why Why are the Allies being criticised for that? I mean, you know, the Allied troops on the ground. I mean, the poor bloody infantry are, are absolutely amazing when you consider the, the difficulty of the terrain, the difficulty of the conditions, a determined enemy which has been ordered to kind of fight for every yard um, and, and who has the height advantage. I mean, I, I'm in awe of what they managed to achieve, frankly. Absolutely. And, and you do a great job. You give us the overall view, but then... And this is one of some of my favorite parts, even though it's it's kind of painful as the reader. You zoom down to the to the individual soldier. You give us a little backstory. You tell us about his friends, and maybe some of his friends are there with him. And there's so many deaths. So it's it's like you 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 introduce us to someone, and then they die, or their best friend dies, and, yeah. and they've got to go on. Yeah. They've. I mean, there was just so much carnage. But like you said, it was literally the men on the ground, the boots on the ground, who were deciding this this battle. Yeah, and I've, I had a bit of a kind of sort of change, change a sort of Damacy moment before I started writing this book because right. um, you know I, I've been very lucky that I've interviewed loads and loads of veterans and and um, from all over the world and loads of American veterans as well, and it's been a, obviously a, a you know, huge privilege. Mm-hmm. But but for this book, I wanted to try and use contemporary sources. One of the problems with 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 following the fortunes of someone who um, you've got to know through an oral history, through kind of you know chatting to them, right? Is it self-evidently they survived because otherwise they wouldn't be chatting to you <laughs> right. in 2007 or whatever it was. And um and and whereas with diaries and letters, as you've kind of intimated, you don't know whether they're gonna make it or not. Yeah. Because a diary could have come off a dead body. Right. And indeed it does. I mean, yes. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm now doing the casino book at the moment. 
the number of people that, that you get to know as a reader and who then get blown to smithereens by an 88 or whatever is horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing about diaries is if they're well-written um, and they're quite kind of, you know, they're quite wordy as opposed to kind of sort of one line a day. Right. Is you get a very, very clear sense of what that character is. Mm-hmm. So suddenly that 21-year-old self or 32-year-old self or 24-year-old self or whatever it is, whatever age they are, really springs off every single page. You start to get a very clear idea of what they like, what they don't like, what's upsetting them, <laughs> right. you know, when they're getting grouchy, you know, how upset they are about losing friends or whatever. You get, you just, their characters come to the fore, sense of humor, all that kind of stuff. Yes. And so you get to know them. And, and you, you know, like, like any walk of life, you kind of like them all, you know, and you like some more than others and mm-hmm. warm to some more than others. And, you know, you get involved in their lives because they're recording it in the moment and they have no idea that Rome's going to take till the 4th of June or the war's going to end in Europe on the, you know, 7th of May, 1945 or whatever. They have no idea. Right. So it's all in the moment. So there's no forward projection. And that's just utterly fascinating. Right. It's a because snapshot. What, what, and also, what, what, yeah. it's a snapshot, yeah. as is a photograph, of course. Right. It's a moment in time. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is is that that... You know, people are using letters particularly, but also diaries as a kind of sort of psychiatrist couch. It's kind of an opportunity to let off steam to sort of get things off their chest. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to be pretty honest. Ah. And and, and also what what concerns someone on the 23rd of October 1943 is not necessarily what they remember concerning them 60 years later or 70 years later when you're interviewing. Right. So you get a much clearer, more honest, not... Honest sounds wrong because it sounds like a, yeah. a, someone talking no, but, to you is is it yeah. leading. They're not. You you get a much truer right. reflection, uh, a, a much greater reflection of, of of what it is really going on at that moment through diaries and letters than you do through oral histories. Yes, I, I enjoy those very much. And so so the Allies have landed. They're pushing their way up the boot. Kessel Ring is determined to defend. There's there's multiple defensive lines. And so there's a lot of slogging. There's a lot of bad weather. There's a lot of politics being played. But what we're going to find out is that everything is about to change, not only for the Italian campaign, not only for the entire European war, not only because more German troops are coming into Italy and they're going to outnumber the Allies, not only because there's a, uh, a series of defensive lines south of Rome, like you were say- saying earlier, but also all of this, again, is still second place to the cross-channel invasion. No one's taking their eyes off of that. So, And like you said, no. this is not going to be a, a victory. It's not like your book is called 1943, The End of Italy in the War. You know, no. this is going to go, oh, that makes me ask, is there, if I can ask, is there going to be a follow-up book to this or maybe you're going to let uh your other book that you wrote about italy and yeah no no i'm doing it right now yes i'm doing it right now excited okay yeah. cool okay, so i'm doing i'm writing right. casino 44 right now i like that okay so the allies are outmanned they're not the top priority they're doing the best they can the geography is horrible the weather is even worse the italians are suffering and but no one knows who could they can trust as far as the Italians, even as individuals? And we're going to leave it there. I love cliffhangers as a podcaster. I want everybody to go out and check out this book. Um, if there's any way that, or let me try this. 
However you would like to wrap this up, please feel free to do to as far as the story. But again, I just wanted to leave something for the readers to, uh, I, I, just, I want them to have the experience I did reading the last few chapters. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, I mean, what I was I was so fascinated about this was was that you know the the Italian campaign is kind of sort of thought up, dreamt up, planned, and all the rest of it, and launched in the kind of you know the heat of the Mediterranean. Right. The sun is bearing down; they're all sweaty. You know, it's absolutely baking hot. There's sort of you know malaria and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Just a few months later, it ends at the end of December 1943 in this absolute wretched quagmire of a sort of awful winter. Right. Awful kind of attritional, ghastly fighting through the mountains. You know, everyone's miserable. The Germans are miserable. The Italian civilians are miserable. You know, the Allies are miserable. It's just completely awful. And it's and it's it's a cautionary tale because it's a sort of it's it's that that disconnect between the optimism with which they launch it right in the in the heat of summer to the kind of grinding down of a campaign which the allies cannot get out of they cannot avoid and yet there's you know because they 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 crossed that rubicon oh, yeah. they're in there and they they've got to see it through to the bitter end but how that bitter end is going to pan out no one is quite sure on the 31st of December, 1943. Right. And as the new year comes, it's going to be even less important because everybody's focused on overlord, the cross channel invasion. Um, right. Yeah. And so if I could real quick, I, I, I want to tell everybody, I want to recommend to everybody before you read this book and you should definitely read this book, go read the Malta book by Mr. Holland, because that will, that was so intense that this book is almost, a payoff. It's like Malta and the Mediterranean went through hell. And with this book, you finally get to see them, you know, North Africa is wrapped up and they're going on. So it's almost like a payoff for suffering that everything that Malta went through, but at the same time contributed to the war effort. Well, thank you for that. I yeah. mean, Malta is a great story and and the whole, you know, it's, it's obviously inextricably linked with the North Africa campaign. Right. Um, you know, Tunisia is interesting because it's, it's the moment where the British and the Americans kind of work out how to how to how to do this, right? Um, you know, they work out that their way forward is is you know, it's amphibious operations. It's a marriage of air, land, and sea forces, yeah. naval forces, and they work out how to do it, and and they do. But then they come into in Sicily, which is very populated, and then they come into Italy, which is even more populated, and it's problematic because you know they're destroying huge amounts of civilian life and infrastructure as they're going forward right. with this kind of way of war that they've they've worked out and they're supposed to be the good guys so you know there's a there's a paradox there which they don't quite sort of get to the bottom of right and you know all of that just adds to the drama and 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 the kind of sort of you know the fascinating strands of of the fighting that takes place in in italy and one that's going to be frankly repeated in northwest europe mm-hmm. you know when they get into northwest europe because you know the amount of tonnage of bombs that's dropped on France, for example, right. or you know elsewhere, is is just enormous. But that's the Allied way of war; they've worked it out, and that's that's why a kind of sort of understanding of the Mediterranean campaign is so vital for anyone who wants to kind of understand what goes on in Normandy and Northwest Europe, or indeed latter stages of the Italian campaign. You know, it, it, it's it's an evolution. It's a it's a you know these things aren't just sort of designed and created with a click of a finger. It's a it's a it's a process, um, and, right. and you see. You see that process, that development of of technology and understanding and operational and tactical skill 
Um, you see that kind of evolving and developing as the Allies kind of sort of move through. And, you know, the Americans obviously are, are slightly later to the party in North Africa than the British and, and the Commonwealth forces, but but they still play an absolutely intrinsic part in it. And all of it is just really, you know, it's just endlessly fascinating, which is why, you know, we're all interested in the subject <laughs> and why we keep on wanting to learn more and read more about it. Right. But it's all connected. A- absolutely. And I think it was, um, you, you said in the book, and this is the last thing I'll bring up, This you said in the book something like, when they were fighting in North Africa, that was almost war in its purest form. You didn't have to worry about civilians. You didn't have to worry about buildings or cattle or whatever. They were just able to go at each other in the desert. But once they're in Italy, it is a completely different type of war. But there's only one way to win, which is to destroy everything in your path if needed. Well, yes, because... um you know, the number one number one job of, of of allied commanders and war leaders is to win the war as quickly as possible with the fewest loss of lives of your own side. Mm-hmm. And you know the allies would say, well, it's 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 extremely unfortunate that Italian civilians are getting killed. Right. But we didn't ask them to join the war. I mean, True. they didn't have to declare war on Britain and France on the tenth of June, nineteen forty. Right. Um, you know, they could have they and and they could have sorted out. You know disarmed the Germans and made this a much easier fight for us, but they chose not to. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was because their leaders were completely feckless. And and obviously, you know, a, an Italian civilian in the kind of, you know, mountain village knows none of this stuff and is, is completely innocent. But but that would be the view of, of, of the Allies. And it's the same with, you know, strategic bombing of Germany. It's like, you stop the war, we'll stop. We, we, we won't destroy yeah. Dresden or Portsheim yeah. or, or yeah. Würzburg or whatever. It's a really, really simple equation. Um, so, you know, the, the, the blame for that is with the enemy war, le- you know, the access war leaders right. and, and, uh, um, but it still, it still poses a kind of sort of moral conundrum because, you know, the, the Western allies are supposed to be the good guys and yet mm-hmm. to ultimately achieve good, you've got to do an awful lot of bad and, and that's problematic. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's. You know, destroying cities and and destroying towns. I mean, yeah, it's it, it's a problem. You know, when the Allies finally get into into Naples, for example, most of the damage caused is not by it's not by the Germans. I mean, the Germans do cause a lot of damage, but but mm-hmm. the bulk of it is the 175 bombing missions and raids that have landed on Naples that year alone. Yeah. So you know, and that's from the Allies, uh, or you know, Benevento, which is completely you know town not far away from from Naples. Right. You know, it was largely destroyed uh, in an attack in I think March or April 1943 by you know Mediterranean strategic bombers. Right. Um, you know, but ultimately the you know the Allies do a lot to kind of clear it all up, and yeah. you know, as I say, the moment the war's over, then you know they stop firing their guns. But mm. but you know, it 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 is it is it is interesting, you know, and and there's no kind of you know, I, I, I'm not preaching about this stuff. I'm just sure, sure. saying it's 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 kind of interesting and and it's problematic. And you know, it's all the more interesting with the backdrop of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, and indeed, exactly you know, in Israel and Gaza, exactly you know, because yeah. you know the the problems that the the Israeli Defense Force are having in Gaza City, exactly the same problems the Allies had in in you know in Italy in 1943-44, or, or the Allies had in Northwest Europe in 1944-45. I mean, it's exactly the same problems. And you can have all these ideals about Geneva Conventions and, you know, right. collateral damage and not wanting to hit civilians and all the rest of it. But the hard reality of war is if you have a have a war, even in the modern age with sophisticated weaponry, ultimately, it's still about blowing stuff up. Yeah. And 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 the problem with urban fighting particularly is, is, is really fascinating because 
if you keep the buildings intact, that means you're you're it's very, very close quarter fighting and you can't see ahead, which means you can't really plan. You can't see around the street corner, you can't see to the next building. Right. If you destroy it all, you have piles of rubble, which, you know, into which the enemy can bury themselves, but at least you've got a field of fire. Yeah. And and it's about survival. So, so yeah. And it's about survival, and it's about a lesser of two evils, and and or from 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 an attacker's point of view. And so that's why the you know that's why the Israelis are, are destroying Gaza City is because the alternative is a, is an unbelievably costly urban fight that they probably won't you know they'll struggle to win. So yeah, you know it's it's really really problematic and it, and 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 you, you can argue over whether the Israeli Defence Force ought to be there or not. You know that's a different point. But right. having committed to that, oh, yeah. that is an inevitable result of what what they're doing, and and it's exactly the same in Italy in 1943. Yeah, there's no good, careful, safe way to conduct war. Uh, I think, exactly yeah. that. That yeah. is a much neater and pithier way of saying <laughs> no. what I've just said in the last five minutes. No. But yes. <laughs> well, I took your genius and I just crunched it. But but Italy, <laughs> Italy is going to find out, like Germany, like Japan, like other nations, the worst thing about war is losing. And that's what yes. Italy is going through. So, Mr. Holland, again, this book was incredible. We have barely touched the ma- vast majority of strands of this tapestry that is the Italian campaign. You did an incredible job, and I want to thank you for the experience. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, for the listeners, oh, thank you. Absolutely. For the listeners, it's the Savage Storm, the Battle for Italy, 1943. Mr. Holland, thank you very much, sir. No, thank you. Thank you for giving me uh, um, such a, a, an opportunity to mouth off about the Italian country. <laughs> Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 451, Part 2, Hope is Not a Sound Strategy. Last time, the Panzers of Army Group Center had reached and taken Kalinin to the northwest of Moscow, while Guderian reached an area close to Tula, due south of the capital. The fact that the Germans did not control Tula was not overly concerning, as they were at the end of a tenuous supply line. The thinking was, just imagine if we had had all the fuel we needed. No, things would turn around, and having troops on three sides of the enemy's capital was a pretty good place to be, you know, if you ignored the worsening weather. However, what the Germans were missing, and would continue to miss, is that Stalin, being convinced the cunning Japanese would not attack Russian territory by his spy Richard Sorge, stationed in Tokyo, was recalling these experienced divisions from their Far East stations. They were experienced because they had gone toe-to-toe with the Japanese army from May until September in 1939, over a border dispute of some 10 miles, or 16 kilometers. From there, it was Japanese pride and Russian truculence that caused the two sides to bang their heads together for months. In the end, General Zhukov arrived on the scene, gathered information, and then dealt with the enemy a series of embarrassing losses. But partially, the Japanese helped, as their tactics here were the same as they would be in the future against the Allies in the Pacific. Simply, they charged at the enemy, hoping that fright, momentum, and a superior will to win would see them through. It did not, on mainland Asia or among the Pacific Islands. 
As covered last time, the Soviet Far Eastern divisions started to arrive, and for simplicity's sake, the numbers drive the point home. At this moment in time, late October, the Soviets have 269 divisions and 65 brigades along the entire front, totaling 2.2 million men. When November came to an end, Moscow would have 343 divisions and 98 brigades, totaling just over 4 million men. And no surprise, most of these were standing right in front of Moscow. For comparison's sake, von Bock had 136 divisions. Well, on paper. In reality, it was more like 83 divisions, totaling some 2.7 million men. And he would get no reinforcements. Stalin, for his part, could call on more if he needed to. And he was about to find out that he did need to. In mid-October, the OKH issued another directive, basically saying, continue the operations that will lead us into the enemy's capital city. And those orders contained specific directives for von Bock's formations. First, 9th Army was to attack towards the Volga Reservoir, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers due east of Kalinin, modern-day Tver and about 80 miles or 128 kilometers northwest of Moscow. If successful, this would put the Germans closer to better controlling the territory due north of Moscow. Next, 3rd and 4th Panzer Groups were to make for Yarsolavl, about 200 miles or 321 kilometers to the northeast of the Volga Reservoir. This would actually put them to the northeast of Moscow, a considerable push to say the least. Now, considering how badly the Germans had to fight just to get this far, telling two understrength panzer groups to make another 200 miles further into enemy territory is quite suspect. Did Berlin really believe in their soldiers and panzers that much? The answer is mostly yes, mostly. But it's probably fair to say that wishful thinking started to creep into the planning and the OKH wasn't done just yet. Next, 2nd Panzer Army, and it's worth noting that just to get here, they were now down to 50 operational panzers out of the 600 they had started with, was to push towards Gorky on the German right or to the south of Moscow, again by some 200 miles. Again, another incredible, nay impossible, task handed to those exhausted troops who still were not wearing winter clothes. That second army was to be on the second panzer's right flank mattered little. No one was getting another 200 miles anywhere along the front in November. Yet this latest offing was to commence on November 15th. And fourth army was to be given the main task of heading towards Moscow and destroying all before them. Not that there could remain that much left, right? It's worth repeating that these objectives were unrealistic, even if Berlin knew nothing of the Far Eastern reinforcements that were now arriving in the area, because the supply lines alone would have been cut at numerous places. But as confident as von Bach was, and he was, there seemed to be an unspoken idea in Berlin about wrapping all of this up by Christmas, and then the Mediterranean and that pesky island, Malta, would be given its proper attention.
This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As the two sides were about to clash again, Von Bock was supremely confident, while General Zukov asked and received permission to handle the entire defense of the capital. Stalin said yes to this, but then eviscerated his own permission by constantly suggesting things. Stalin was not a man to sit on the sidelines. And probably from his lack of experience, even given this last summer, Stalin had an unrealistic fear that the enemy had the men and means to surround his major cities, Leningrad, Moscow, Rostov in the south, and Stalingrad. Worse, once they were surrounded, they would be captured, which helps explain his meddling in Zhukov's affairs. After Stalin gave Zhukov the reins, he then sent him more men to the main West Front, to Konev's Kalinin Front, and to Timoshenko's Southwestern Front in the south. And now that Zhukov was in control and reinforced, Stalin intervened and told him to launch a series of attacks. Why let the Germans have the initiative? But Zhukov knew that in their current position, it was best to have the enemy struggle just to get to them and then engage with them. But Stalin was not to be gainsaid. One day before the Germans were to launch their attack, Zhukov got there first on November 14th by having Lieutenant General Zakharin's 49th Army attack the 12th and 13th Army Corps close to Serperkov about 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of the capital. After this, the 2nd Cavalry Corps were sent in to take advantage of any German disarray. Problem was, there was not any German disarray. So the cavalry achieved practically nothing except dying. Next, about 35 miles or 56 kilometers west by northwest of Moscow, Roskozovsky had his 16th Army charge into the gap in between the 14th Motorized and 7th Panzer Divisions. If Stalin was hoping for a further separation of the army, he did not get what he wanted. Very little came of this attack as well. Zhukov could only keep quiet. He kept quiet, but he hoped Stalin was seeing the results of his premature attacks. Of all the attackers just mentioned, one-third of those men were now gone, and the Germans hadn't even started yet. 
Worse, at least 157, but probably closer to 200 Soviet tanks, were now lost. Added to this was the 44th Cavalry Division of Major General Dovator's 3rd Cavalry Corps. That was now practically non-existent. Another unit lost 75% of their personnel. So, on one hand, these attacks weakened the defenders overall, but it gave them confidence to be the ones attacking. Yet, bullets nor shells care about feelings. The day before Zhukov launched his attacks, the chief of staff of the OKH, or Army High Command, Halder, met with the Army Group Chiefs of Staff at Viptesk. And it was a good meeting. After all, how many men could the weakened Soviet state still have before Moscow? And then one officer ironically invoked the aid of the weather by saying, give us six more weeks of cold weather as it froze the mud, but he did not want snow. Yet those familiar with Mother Nature know she's not one on granting wishes. But on that supernatural level, the pull of taking the enemy's capital, the great city of the Russians, it was just too tantalizing for the Germans. Their desire could not let them see any other outcome. Another great victory was to hand. Heady days, indeed. Yet, there was an ounce of reality then interjected into this meeting. Von Bock's chief of staff, von Griffenberg, then showed up after examining the front, and he agreed with von Bock. Moscow had to be taken by a frontal attack. That Halder's overreaching idea of a massive encirclement towards Moscow, hundreds of miles in the making, was impractical and equally impossible. The question of fuel alone negated this. So Halder agreed to let von Bock have his head with his less ambitious plan. They would charge at the capital. But then, bringing the party down, Kesselring, in charge of the Luftwaffe, said, Not only have a large number of my planes already headed for the Mediterranean, but on November 18th, even more were ordered to leave, per Hitler. So whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. But then the real Debbie Downer spoke up, the OKH quartermaster representative. Basically, he said, we cannot sustain you through this, period. I don't care how much you scale it back. Currently, fuel deliveries were one-fourth of what they should be, and that will not change anytime soon. Which is when Halder completely left planet Earth, he left reality behind, or rather, took a ride on the Nazi Superiority Express when he said the OKH was not going to stand in Von Bock's way if he thinks he can succeed. You also need a little bit of luck in war. True enough, but no amount of favorable turns would power a panzer. But that's hindsight, the easiest job in the world. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual. 
because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Yet it was the fuel situation that caused Von Bock to scale back his attack a bit, though they were still unrealistic. And as this latest battle was to be launched, those German units going for Moscow numbered some 233,000 men with 1,880 guns, 1,300 tanks, and about 800 aircraft. But again, in a few days, some of those would be departing for the Mediterranean. This force was going up against the Soviets' 240,000 men, so almost even there. 1,254 guns, there another German advantage. 502 tanks, again another German advantage. But 1,238 aircraft versus the 800 mentioned by the Germans. And the Germans' airstrips were barely worthy of that name. Meanwhile, the Soviet planes were taking off from permanent airfields all around Moscow. And one of the reasons the Germans were in such a state was constant enemy air attacks. True, the planes were not taking out that many panzers, but they were bombing and strafing men and supply trucks. It had the same effect. To the north of Moscow, the attack got underway on November 15th. The attack had been labeled Operation Volga Reservoir. The idea was to have German forces push towards and reach the reservoir and the Moscow Canal just below it. The latter is about 60 miles or 96 kilometers north by northwest of the capital. Thus, on the 15th, the 9th Army's 27th Army Corps, assisted by the 3rd Panzer Group's 56th Panzer Corps, and Hopner's 5th and 46th Army Corps headed out. Of course, the last two were delayed by a day, as they were defending, still defending, Kalinin, which was still being attacked by Soviet troops. But these two units were replaced with other German formations, and then the 5th and 46th Army Corps rushed to catch up. The leading German elements fought through and reached the reservoir and canal on November 18th. Things were looking good. Then the other German units caught up and joined in. Suddenly, Roskozovsky's line was breaking up and breaking up fast. Von Bock heard of this and moved his command train closer to the fighting. He wanted to be on hand to give aid or direct what looked like a promising thrust into the capital's defenses. Roskozovsky, for his part, saw the writing on the wall and asked Zukov if he could retreat to the Istra River, but was told no. So, Roskozovsky, not wanting to be captured, or worse, and did not want to be the one to let the Germans reach the capital, went over Zhukov's head to ask the chief of staff, Shiposhikov, who said yes, as he trusted the local commander. When Zhukov heard of this, he sent another message to the front saying, Belay that order. You will listen to me. And to prove how sincere he was, Zukov had the commander and commissar of the 133rd Rifle Division shot 
right in front of his own men for allowing an unauthorized retreat. Roskozovsky and everyone else got the message. Stalin might be the man of steel and Hitler the chosen one to lead Germany to greatness, but General Zhukov, he was the Iron Man. He would defend Moscow and the people of the city, and anyone who got in his way would go the way of the commander and commissar. Death to all enemies and those disloyal to the cause. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to say hi to some new members and thank those who have donated. And again, I want to thank James Holland for coming on. Huge fan. Love everything he does. Anyway, so hopefully I didn't gush too much or I was able to edit it out. That's Don't worry about that. Anyway, so uh, Walter Stotts from Lambertville, Michigan. But I think Walter wrote to me and he said he was just renewing. Either way, Walter, thank you very much for supporting the show. Um, Joel Devlin from Balcom Hills, New South Wales, Australia. So thank you, Joel. Uh, Peter Greco from Katy, Texas. And he sent me a very nice email. So Peter, thank you very much for that. So those are the latest members who pay five bucks a month or they can pay annually and they get two episodes extra a month. Normally stuff behind the scenes, the smaller stories. Currently we're doing um, the Allies taking over of Madagascar. Uh, Let's see here. As far as those who have donated, uh, Kyle Ryder. Thank you very much, Kyle. Cool name. Uh, Chad Reinhardt. Okay. Reinhardt, another cool name. Uh, David Richards. Okay, everybody's got cool names but me. I'm going to... Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. And Wesley Woods from Waynesville, North Carolina. Hello, Wesley. Uh, thank you very much for donating. Thank you all for supporting the show. So I'm uh, trying to get back on a roll where I was putting out a show like every four or five days. The holidays really messes that messed that up. But anyway, so that's what we're going to try to do. So hope you enjoyed the interview. Please check out his book. We're back on the story. We are. I think there's probably going to be one more episode of Army Group Center. Then we'll cover Army Group South. And once we bring them back up to speed, and then it's off to the races. Take care, everyone.